If you'll take your Bibles and please open them to Hebrews chapter 10. And as you turn there, I would invite the ushers to come forward. Uh, and I have something to hand out. Uh, we gave out uh, our proposed changes to the covenant, to our church covenant, a couple of weeks ago at the members meeting. And we wanted to make them available to everyone uh, who was not able to be there, as well as those who were. But we wanted to, it, you'll have on, it is front and back. On one side is the proposed church covenant, and it says proposed church covenant. And on the other side, it says current church covenant, all right? So you can take that, and uh, at this time, I would encourage you to just set it aside, all right? Which is terrible. I know you just got it. You want to look at it. You want to read it. We will, towards the end, we will read through it, all right? I promise you. At this time, we want to point ourselves to the Word of God and uh, what He has for us this morning. I'd like you to think about those of you who have dated, those of you who are married, Think about that time in your relationship, perhaps when you were dating or when you were, you were beginning to get an interest in someone. Perhaps you were a guy and you had been doing something with a girl for a while. You'd gone out with her. You'd spent time with her and her family. You were showing up to things and, and being with her. You were expressing your interest. Or, or ladies, you had someone who was showing a lot of interest in you. And you were doing things together. And sometime in that relationship, you, one of you, needed to clarify what the relationship status was. You asked the question, where is this going? Perhaps you didn't have to. Perhaps it was expressed right up front. Look, I'm really looking for someone to marry. That just puts all the cards immediately on the table, which is a wonderful thing. I'm not just fooling around. I'm not just trying to have fun with lots of different people. I am serious. I am pursuing someone. But at some point, you got to find out, are we dating or are we just friends that spend a lot of time together? What What is happening? Usually, it is the woman who tends to ask that question. That is typically how it works. The guy's typically are known for hitting the brakes and postponing any sort of commitment for as long as possible. And the ladies are, hey, where do you see us as? What what is our our status here? What am I supposed to put on Facebook? Just just want to clarify. I knew a young woman who, this is a sad story, I knew a young woman who had, for all intents and purposes, she and a guy had been dating for close to five years. But he didn't like the word dating, so they never called dating. They were just friends. Well, these two just friends spent a lot of time together, all the time together that they could. They held hands. They did all, they, 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 for all intents and purposes, they were dating. And it got to the point where she was expecting they were going to have a conversation and she was expecting that conversation to end with a question on his part. Will you marry me? And he 
started that conversation with, I thought I should tell you I'm dating someone else. And when she asked, how have you been dating someone else? We, we have been dating. And he corrected her. Oh no, we've just been friends. I know that young woman. She was my sister. I really wanted to do that whole like brother thing with a baseball bat and it was painful. Where are we? What is our relationship status? How do we what what are our expectations? In our in our world today, our society today, you you'll often hear or come across statements like I don't need I don't want to get married. I don't need a piece of paper to tell me that I love someone. I love how one author put it. When you hear something like that, all that says is that they do not love you enough and are not willing to cut off all the other options. What we know intuitively when it comes to relationships is that the deeper the commitment, the more meaningful the relationship. The more deeply each one is committed to the other and to that relationship, the more meaningful that relationship becomes. We can begin to let our hair down, for those of you that have hair. We can be who we are. But somehow, as Christians we have forgotten that that applies also to our relationships one to another. This morning, we are going to look at one of the many passages where the Lord lays for us expectations of how we are to live together. We could go, there are dozens of places in the New Testament where we could look at, where Christ, the apostles, will lay out. This is what your lives together ought to reflect. But this is a helpful passage. It's helpful because it's it's so closely tied up with two foundational truths without which there can be no committed covenant relationship with one another. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 all the way to 25. If you're using a pew Bible today, it is page 1041. If you're new to the Bible, new to church, it'll be helpful for you to know that those large numbers are chapter divisions. The small numbers are verse divisions. We'll be looking from verses 19 to 25. And we have the author of Hebrews. We do not know who he is. He's writing anonymously. He writes this, Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. That those three verses list out two foundational truths. I appreciate how the ESV, the NIV, other translations will say, since we have, they make it clear that our having of these things is foundational. And there are two things this passage tells us we have. 
two foundational possessions that we have. The first is confident access to the presence of God. We see that in verses 19 to 20. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Genuine believers, brothers and sisters, if you have put your faith in Christ, you do not just have access to God by the, by the skin of your teeth. You have bold access to God. Like we sang earlier when we were singing, Arise, my soul, arise, that, that last verse. With confidence I now draw near. That is taken from this passage. Because Christ and his bleeding wounds, they have made satisfaction for our sin. We have confident access to God. And we have confident access, we are told, to enter, the, the New King James puts it, the holiest. And really, it's, it's a, a, a plural, the holy places. In the Old Testament, it wasn't just the, the holy of holies that was off limits for the general population. It was the, the, tab, the temple itself could not be entered. In fact, there were restrictions on who could enter the courtyard. There was an outer courtyard, and that's where people could go, and then there, had, there were restrictions the closer you got. And you only entered in, you got closer and closer to that holiest of holies, that, that inner sanctum, only through sacrifice, only through shed blood. That was the old way. But now there is a new way. A new way opened for us through the finished work of Jesus. Once we were cut off, once we were not God's people, once we were on the outside with no hope of ever gaining access. But now, now, despite the fact that You and I could never merit it, could never deserve it, could never work hard enough, could never become a better version of ourselves sufficient to gain God's favor and pleasure, despite not having any of that ability within ourselves. God has opened up a new way through His Son. We are spiritually diseased disgusting, dead in our sin. Yet, through Christ, we have confident access to God. He became a willing sacrifice. He lived what you and I could never live. He obeyed the law of God in its entirety with all of his mind, all of his heart, all of his strength. Where you and I fail every moment of every day. I love how one old author put it. Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Nothing in our hands we bring. Only to the cross we cling. And through the cross we have confident, bold access to God. A stranger would never seek to, they would be cautious and scared and and formal as they tried to appeal to the king. But you and I, we can go to him at any time for we are his children. Not only is it a new way, it is a living way. 
It is living in the sense that it is opened up for us by the by our Savior Christ Jesus, whoever lives to make us intercession for us. He is living now before the throne of God, interceding for you. He is praying for you. Has been all week, and he will all this week, and the next, and the next, and the next. In fact, He will never stop praying for you, not only when you die, but never throughout all eternity. Because the moment we we cease to have a living Savior pleading for us, advocating for us, we cease to have access to God. It is a living way, opened up through the living Son of God who has died and rose again. He is living now to make intercession. That's our first high, that's our first possession. Having boldness to enter the holy, holiest, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Here's the second having. And having a high priest over the house of God. Even now he is our high priest living for us. He is the one pleading for us. He is the one. We need no other priest. We need no other church leader. He is the one to which we come. We need not saints. We need not Mary. We have Jesus. What more could we add to him? Who else knows our pain better than him? And because he is accepted, we too in him will always be accepted. We are always beloved by God in Christ Jesus. Twice in the life of Christ we are told that the Father speaks to the Son and tells him, Publicly, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And if we have trusted in Christ Jesus, he is our high priest, and we are united with him, we are the recipients of that pleasure. Not because of us and what we might do, but because of him and what he has done. We have a new living way. We have a high priest. And this brings about three imperatives for every believer. Theologians are not known for being very good joke tellers. They're very good, uh, very creative. And so in seminary, I remember a professor once describing this as the lettuce passage of the Bible. There's three, let us therefore do this. That's cheesy, isn't it? I won't mention that. That's cheesy. But there are three imperatives here. And they're in, they're in, they're in the form of an invitation, but it's not an invitation. It's let us do this, but it's, that's the let us. Hey, let's do this, but that's the let us of a king. That's not a mere suggestion. Hey, if this is convenient for you, this, this is our king, our God, telling us, now let us do this. 
The first thing we are told, three imperatives. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first imperative is fairly simple. Let us draw near, that is, be committed to worship. Both private and public, in prayer, in meditation upon God's Word, in song, in in all of life, draw near, worship God. We can worship with genuine and sincere heart, right affections and right adoration of God. We are to worship with full assurance of our standing before Him. Perhaps this morning you do not have such assurance. Friend, if you are struggling this morning with your standing before God, Absolutely, I would encourage you to talk to me, talk to one of our elders, talk with someone next to you after the service today. Connect with me this week. I would love to share with you how you might know and taste the sweetness of assurance with God. But more than all that, I would point you to look to Christ. Not to point you back to a memory that you may or may not have of a moment in time but to point you to Jesus. That's all that he does here. We draw draw near to God with full assurance. Why? Because of Christ. He has opened the way. He is our high priest. Look to him. Trust in him. We worship with a clean conscience because Christ has cleansed us from all sin. And the outward sign of this inward reality of a clean conscience, the outward sign of that is baptism, being washed with water. That's what's being referred to there. That's that first imperative. Be committed to worship. Draw near to God. Secondly, be committed to the faith. Be committed to the faith, to the truth of God, to the truth of our hope. He writes in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. That word, confession, is the same word that, it it doesn't mean just merely a a verbal response. It is talking about our, our faith in a body of truth. It is speaking about a set of beliefs, a set of teachings, a set of doctrines that are being held to. And he is calling us now, Because of Christ, not only do we worship God, but we hold fast to the truth of his word. This confession of our hope, this confession of our faith, of our hope in God. It is that same idea that is connected with statements of faith of of previous generations. And so you have the Westminster Confession of Faith, or the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And there are so many historic confessions of faith. They are picking up on this word. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And we do so without wavering. Not because we are certain of our strength. No, we can hold fast to the truth of Scripture, which 
puts forth our hope in Christ. We can do that because God is faithful. All of his word, all of his promises, he cannot fail to be true to them. Where you and I struggle against faithfulness and must war with ourselves and with the world around us to be faithful to our word, God cannot fail to be faithful in all that he says and does. Let us hold the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then we have this third and final imperative. And we might summarize it this way, to be committed to the community of Christ. To be committed to the community of Christ. He writes in verse 24 and 25, and let us consider one another. And it could be, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. That's, that, is, that is a perfectly way, good way of arranging this and interpreting this. We are to be mindful of one another. We are to be considerate, not just considerate. We are to be thoughtful about one another. As we gather with God's people, and this is going to speak about our need to gather, we do so not only intent on coming to be served, but to serve. To be watching out for one another, caring for one another. So when we gather as a church, you ought to increasingly come looking who is sitting alone. Who looks discouraged? Who looks like there is a need? Is there someone I can encourage today? Is there someone I can serve and minister to? You know, it's so easy in our society. You enter in, you sit in your pew. If you've been coming at any length of time, you have like a set place, don't you? To sit down, find your seat, talk with the people around you, and then leave quickly. We ought to be mindful of one another, to be considering one another. And we want that for ourselves, all of us. We, we want people to notice. If, they, if, if there's a look on our face that tells others that we are struggling this week, oh, isn't it a joy when someone comes alongside and says, hey, I just noticed Sunday you looked off. Is there any way that I can pray for you? Is there anything you need? I noticed when you were talking, you, you mentioned there, there was a, a problem. Do you need help with that? And not only are we to be mindful of those who we see, we are to be mindful of those we don't see. Those whom we haven't seen for a while, those whom are not able to come. And we ought to be particularly considering one another, how, he tells us, how to stir one another up, to spur one another on to love and good works, to provoke one another, to love for Christ, love for his word, love for others, to works of service and generosity and sacrifice and hospitality, This is, as one author put it, this is a description of a compelling community. 
I mean, think about that. If there, the, the more a church family reflects this kind of activity, that is a compelling community in a world that is fractured and divisive, that is broken and fragmented along so many lines. But as we gather for a church with all of our imperfections, all of our imperfections, all of our shortcomings, but we gather committed to love one another. That is a compelling vision of the gospel. There is a, in in our time and in our world, a desire to make church more attractional in, in our services, to make it more entertaining to do things that are going to be relevant, to, to, to get eyeballs and interest and be creative, all of those things. And the thing that's meant to be most attractional about a church is not only what it declares, but by how that church works together, by what we do, how we live. We are to be bent toward one another. And this requires commitment. We see this. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love, stir up one another to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is a commitment to show up to be with one another. If we fail to gather regularly, we cannot love one another. You cannot do what we are commanded here from a distance only. It requires proximity. This is why virtual church just doesn't work. Where's the the love one for another? How do you how do you do that? Without a commitment to Christ and one another, we will not gather regularly. And without get being able, without gathering regularly, we will not be challenged, nor will we challenge one another. And up till now, the commands have been primarily like we could we could view them personal, even though the, the let us that's that's plural, that is us together, we could view that as simply let us each in our own worship God on our own, let us each on our own hold fast to the truth of God. But here we find that we cannot do that. Here our faith is public, it is corporate, it requires a gathering of other believers that we know and love and are accountable to and are holding accountable the author is calling for here, what the Lord is calling for here, is for a certain kind of commitment. We know, as we said before, the more committed a relationship, the more meaningful the relationship. And this is the kind of church community that is unmistakable. It is a a gathered community corporate, local body. We see this a few chapters later in Hebrews chapter 13. The author writes in Hebrews 13, verse 7, 
Remember your leaders. Consider the outcome of their way and of their life and imitate their faith. This presupposes that you know who your church leaders are, that we are not going from simply church to gather church. And a few verses later, Hebrews 13, 17, we are told, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This presupposes not only do you know who your leaders are, but that they know who you are and that they are able to hold you accountable. If we are followers of Christ, then we must see that his death places upon us certain obligations. And those obligations are good. And they are meant for our well-being. And it is these demands, these expectations, all throughout the New Testament, that we see in our church covenant. You can pick up that piece of paper that was given to you at the, earlier in our time together. And in the centuries following the Protestant Reformation, there was this question that was asked, on what basis were churches meant to be formed? You can imagine that yourself. You go to another country. You want to plant a church. You start a Bible study. You get a group of people coming together. They're studying the Bible together. How do you take that Bible study from being a Bible study to being a church? What is, what is it that has to happen? Whether, whether it is formally and written out or informally and unspoken, but still very, very clear. That is what Christians were wrestling with in post Reformation in the time when they came out of the Roman Catholic Church. Three individuals in 1649 in the New England colonies, John Cotton, Richard Mather, and Ralph Partridge, they were considering just this question. And they said, you know what? We do not gather as a church. Churches are not formed merely by people's profession of faith. Otherwise, we would all be Members of every local church. And if I can quote that kid's movie, The Incredibles, and paraphrase it a little bit, when we are members of, when we are all members of all local churches, then none of us are members of any local church. We, we are not with every group of people. There has to be some meaningful commitment in which we carry out these commands. Moreover, the, They saw that it was not based on geography, not based on a parish system. That is, you live in this region, in this township, therefore you belong to that church, and and you live over there, so that's your church. And they saw that that couldn't be it either. Not only is that not reflected in the New Testament, but that would mean that even those who do not believe in Christ were somehow a part of that local church. No, what they saw is that a church was made up of those who had trusted in Christ, followed the Lord in baptism, and committed themselves to a local body of believers where they covenanted together, they committed to one another with the help of Christ to fulfill toward one another the commands of the New Testament. And they began what we now 
and many churches since then have begun to do, to write out a church covenant. You see that, re- that church covenant reflected there in those words. It is built on what they ri- have written and others after them. And the church covenant is very simple. It is a, a promise to the Lord, to one another, and to ourselves that we will, as best as we can, by the help of the Holy Spirit, to obey God's commands for us. It is a sign of our personal commitment to Christ and to one another, and it is an assurance that we will love and have compassion on one another. It is also the standard to which we will hold one another accountable. We see examples of covenants all over in our world around us. Athletes, they sign contracts, and in those contracts, they will often have moral clauses. If they fail in some way, morally, and it's significant enough, that team reserves the right to let them go, to fire them, to release them. We see that. Businesses will sometimes have this as well. We have marriage covenants in which we make vows one to another of what we hope to do. A church covenant is similar to those things. And it serves us. A covenant serves us as a church. It reminds us of what is true and most attractive mark of a local church. It's not the size of our building, nor the number of those who sit in the pews, nor the the sound of our music, or how relevant the preaching is, or even how bald the speaker is. The most important thing in a local church outside of the public proclamation of God's word, is our love one for another. It is the most attractive and most compelling thing we can do as a church. So follow along as I read our proposed church covenant this morning. We'll not read the current church covenant. You may do that if you wish. We have read that again and again, especially at our members' meetings. We begin by saying this. Having been led by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, according to the abounding grace of God, and upon the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. This is our commitment by God's help to commit one to one another. And we have the first, second paragraph. We commit, therefore, by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement in knowledge, holiness, and grace of this local assembly within the body of Christ, to promote its spiritual health, to sustain its worship, ordinances, and doctrines, and to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the financial support of the ministry, the needs of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. We also commit to maintain family and personal worship, to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Savior, to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and to seek the salvation of our family, our acquaintances, and all whom the Lord has placed around us. We also commit to live carefully and with integrity in the world, 
to abstain from sinful desires and worldly practices that war against the soul, to put away from us all bitterness, anger, and slander, and to be just in our dealings and faithful in our engagements, remembering that since we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, we now have a special obligation to lead new and holy lives. We further commit to watch over one another in brotherly love, to bear one another's burdens in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to be kind and forgiving toward one another in speech and action, to be slow to take offense, yet always ready for reconciliation, to faithfully encourage, exhort, and admonish one another as the occasion may require, and to gather together regularly as a local assembly as the Lord commands. These things we do, remembering the words of our Savior when he said, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. We will, if we move from this assembly as soon as possible, unite with some other like-minded church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. And with the words of this covenant, we bind ourselves together and by God's help seek to serve him by loving one another. To show forth, not only with our words, but with our lives, the beauty of the gospel of Christ Jesus that brings sinners together and unites us with love in Christ. As we pray, prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, it is fitting to ask this morning, how is your commitment to Christ? Are you committing yourselves not only to him, but one of the marks First John makes clear is that we are to love one another? How are you showing love one to another? Have we allowed convenience entertainment or sleep or sports or other events to dull our commitment to Christ and to his people. Brothers and sisters, we have a great commission. We have a great Savior who has brought us together. Let us consider one another, how to spur one another on to love and good works, knowing that we have a Savior who has invited and called us to boldly come before him and opened up the way that we might go to God and enjoy him for all eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come as sinners. No matter how beautiful the sentiments are of any covenant, we are incapable of fulfilling such sentiments, such commitments. Without your help, we can do nothing. Oh God, we long for you to work in us that we might love one another, serving one another, that we as a church might increasingly be a light of joy and gospel hope for all around us. This we pray in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus.
Amen.